hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Pass. Welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. I'm Brennan Storr. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 158, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, how are you? I'm okay. I've decided this week to add another plate to my life that I need to spin. But other than that, everything else is, is going hunky-dory. <laughs> yes, a ve- it's, it's a very exciting plate, though. Mm, well, we'll wait and see till it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> everything else you've put your hand to has been exceptional. I do not doubt that this will be Thank the you. same. Yep, yep. So, uh, yeah, finally started the book after procrastinating for three years. So excited, Paul. This is the best possible news I could ever have gotten. This is, the world could have gotten. This is a great thing. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been a, it's been a hectic week because uh, I've just finished another foreword for another book and yes. uh, and my articles, my first published article for Haunted Magazine is officially out as well. So it's just a lot of, a lot of words in my life this week. <laughs> and there was a lot of words today. Yes, but great words, weren't they? They really were. Of course, we are referring to the fact that Paul and I were recording this after recording the uh, the rest of the show because we had a guest on this episode. We have a guest coming up. He is Brandon Schecksneider. He is the host of the Southern Gothic podcast. Brandon is such a cool guy. And he, literally, we were on the, well, you'll hear about it. We we're on the phone for a long time. And uh, we <laughs> many, many words were said. We have some fantastic stories about swamps. This episode is all about terrifying tales of swamps. And Brandon really brought the heat, along with some really cool historical knowledge. Again, the guy's just a a fountain of information. Southern Gothic is a great show. It's well-produced. It's got great information. And I really encourage you to check it out. So I think you guys are going to enjoy that conversation when it comes. As for me, it was was a pretty busy week. Uh, Not for anything so interesting as as you, but um, I went to go see uh, an IMAX 25th anniversary screening of Darren Aronofsky's film, Pi. And let me tell you, if you ever think to yourself, I don't have any anxiety today, I suggest you go see Pi on a four-story tall screen. (laughs) I watched it once. It gave me a headache. Yes. Yes. Well, imagine that uh, much bigger. Mm. So I saw that. And then last night, just randomly, I I was looking at Facebook and social media gets a bad name and it should because it's garbage. But every now and again, the algorithm does something right. And in this case, one, it brought me the screening of Pi. Two, I was cruising Facebook yesterday and I saw an advertisement for Evanescence and Muse playing a concert here in Montreal at the Bell Center. And there were still tickets available and I thought, fuck it, why not? So I went and relived 2004 in the presence of about uh, 30,000 screaming people. And you know, I actually had a really great time. Mm-hmm. I was I was not a huge fan of either band. I knew of them. You know, I, I've got, there's a couple of Muse songs I really like. I was very aware of Evanescence, but uh, I just thought, well, what the hell? I'm not doing anything else tonight. It's you know, tickets are the, the nosebleeds are only sixty bucks, and no, I was blown away. It was just a great show all around. Mm-hmm. Was it a giant headliner? Uh, I, I would say sort of. Um, Evanescence didn't play quite as long as Muse. Muse played about two hours. I think Evanescence played about an hour and twenty. Mm. But uh, in terms of in terms of just the energy, I, I would say they were they were absolutely equal. They both brought it. Like again, Evanescence is celebrating the 
the 20th anniversary of their album. I think it's Fallen. And it really haven't lost a step. They, you know, for, for, if you're into Evanescence, they did exactly what you would have wanted from a show. And I was surrounded by people who were roughly about the age I was when I first heard that album. So that was a sobering thing as my 40th birthday approaches. <laughs> yeah. The dangers, dangers of going to see hip bands when you reach a certain age is worrying. Um, am I going to be the oldest person here? <laughs> well, I wasn't that quite, I wasn't quite the oldest person there. The fellow sitting next Good. to me who was there with his 14 year old son, he might've been the oldest person there. <laughs> yeah. It's his dad's fault. He's had to take him to his dad. When he was listening to that album 20 years ago, he wasn't thinking, well, I can't wait till I've got to bring my kid here. <laughs> this guy was from Bath of all places too. <laughs> Ah, crazy. Well, Matt Bellamy from Muse, his sister, was uh, one of one of our regulars in the in the Washington stepsister. Oh, no kidding. Mm-hmm. Had had a few shandies in my pub over the years. Paul, famous friends, best to look at this guy. <laughs> I wouldn't say friends, but uh, <laughs> I know them to go hello to huh? hey. without them without them saying fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. So yeah, no, that was great. And that has been more or less my week. I've been really stoked for this show. I, I, I'm always up for things that involve the woods. Swamps I find particularly distressing because it involves water in woods, neither of which I'm particularly equipped to survive. And again, mm-hmm. having met Brandon a little while back, I was, we've been trying to sort of get, get him on the show and it all just kind of worked out. So I, I cannot wait to share this episode with people because again, we, we had a blast. It's always exciting to meet a creator who's as innovative and uh, enjoyable as, as Brandon. So uh, I've, I've been looking forward to this since, since we got it penciled in. So, uh, and it, and it surpassed my expectations where, where a smashing gentleman he is. Absolutely. Before we get there, of course, though, we got to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, what would we do without you? Not very much at all is the answer. <laughs> Patrons, you make the show go, for real. Without the patrons, this show doesn't exist. And so we'd like to thank all our patrons, but right now we would especially like to thank our latest patrons. They are... Rolly Lobsinger. Katya Hood. Kimberly Garnett. Kiki. Caroline Lynch. Nisha Mabel. Gonzo Fluffy Buns. Folks, thank you so, so much. Again, we cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. You guys pay the bills. You help keep me fed, and let's face it, that's no small task. And (laughs) your support gives us the encouragement we need to keep on going. Every single person who listens to the Ghost Story Guys, you help make the show what it is. But without our patrons, we would not be able to keep it going. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And while we'll tell you at the end of the show about all the cool stuff you get, we will say, for a dollar a month, you get an ad-free feed. Who doesn't want that? Ads suck. For more information, head to patreon.com slash ghost story guys that's patreon.com slash ghost story guys we have also recently become available on apple podcasts as a subscription and if you do sign up to that shoot us an email it's still in its nascence we're still kind of getting the hang of it but that will essentially be a place for you to get most of our bonus content so you will get ad free episodes early release you'll also get the up to hour long bonus conversations that paul and i have from each episode i think the last one was about an hour and five minutes and it's not quite as full featured as Patreon, but the advantage is that you get the convenience of Apple Podcasts without having to screw around with Patreon, which can be a pain sometimes. And again, if you've got an Apple device, 
and you're listening to us on iTunes then or Apple Podcasts, then you will be able to subscribe to us there. And if you do end up subscribing, shoot us an email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Let us know and we will shout you out in the patron segment as well. If this was a perfect world, I would be able to play one of my favorite Disney songs. Uh, I'm going to take you all the way down from Princess and the Frog, which I'm not much of a Disney guy, Paul, but I adore Princess and the Frog. Have you seen it? <laughs> uh, it doesn't. I wasn't. I'm not a typical. I'm one of those strange people. I wasn't really a big. It's like the Muppets, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's not many. Fair, there's not I, many Disney films. I think. Um, I think the Black Hole and the Fox and the Hound put me off. Robin Hood was my is my favorite Disney old film. Oh, fair. Okay. Well, the Princess and the Frog. I'm again. I'm not much of a Disney guy, but I adore that film. Beautiful art. Wonderful music. And the song is, I just looked up, the song is called Gonna Take You There. In a perfect world, I'd be able to play that. It's got this great Zydeco sound. However, this is not a perfect world, but we have a pretty great composer. So we're not, we're not really missing anything. No. We have, of course, Rainy Days for Ghosts, who makes our music. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and composer Jerry Smith. You can find their music streaming online as Rainy Days for Ghosts. And if you want to hire Jerry to score your next project, shoot them an email at Ghosts at gmail.com. The track you're going to be hearing today is their brand new single, Wild Child, which just hit streaming. Again, that's Wild Child by Rainy Days for Ghosts. Check the link in the show notes if you want to hear more. All right, Paul, it's almost that time. Let's do it. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Brandon Sheck Snyder. Welcome back. As we said before the break, on this episode, we have a guest storyteller, and this is someone we've been looking forward to having on the show for a very long time. He is the host of the Southern Gothic Podcast, one of the best history podcasts out there, particularly if you are from the South or have an interest in it. He is Brandon Schecksneider. Brandon, welcome to Ghost Story, guys. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure. And, and you and I have been getting to know each other because the time change happened. <laughs> And we forgot that it does not happen in the UK for another few weeks. And so we both got here a little early. It's been a blast. Thanks for being so late, Paul. <laughs> I specialize in it. It's bad manners to be early. So Brandon, for, for the folks who don't know, you, you, as we said, you're the host of the Southern Gothic podcast, which as I mentioned to you off air is an exceptional podcast. It is uh, one of the, one of the shows that I think combines and, and not every show can pull this off. It is well-researched, it is well-told, and it's well-produced. I was saying usually shows kind of get two of those three. It's not often you get all three together, but Southern Gothic manages it. And so tell us, how is it you managed to be so great, man? I demand answers. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I'll fail at everything else in my life, apparently, right? And put on this. That's how we all telling ghost stories, right? That's about the only thing I can do right. No, man, it's, it's, it is such a wonderful thing. It's a passion project, like all of us, what we're doing, right? You know, I'm, I'm such, a, such a fan of history and the paranormal. And I actually do the show, just, just so you know that I do cheat. This isn't all just me. Uh, the research for the show is actually done with my sister. She's my partner in the project. Uh, she's an archivist down at the Louisiana State Museum. So she works 
in an archives uh, down in New Orleans in the French Quarter. That's her career and her profession. And and she um, and I myself came from an audio engineering background. So I, I've been working in audio for almost 20 years now. I had my first career. Uh, I spent a lot of time in recording studios, right? And I was, I was out here. I'm right outside of Nashville and working on Music Row for all of my 20s and working with songwriters and folks who were telling stories. I mean, that was that's the vibe of that that Southern tradition and country music and Americana. And so I, I got to firsthand be around guys who were just top of the line storytellers in a recording studio environment. So it's this this has been such a such a passionate endeavor in trying to to capture that in a new medium and be able to tell these stories this way. So I, I, I put a lot of time into it and and definitely. Um, definitely enjoy doing it. So hopefully, I'm glad that comes across. Thank you for saying that, Brennan. Oh, absolutely. I, I as, as I mentioned to you again off air, uh, the most recent episode I listened to was I, actually, I think your most recent episode, it was about the, the Sultana disaster. Right. Correct. Yeah. And that was such a, a viscerally told story. You know, it was, it was just the, it's so easy to imagine uh, greed and incompetence ending <laughs> in tragedy. You know, there, there's precedent for this, one might say. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Especially in that, that kind of, that was right after the civil war when that happened too. So, you know, it was, the South was pretty right. decimated economically. And uh, for anybody who hasn't had the opportunity to listen to the story, this was, uh, it was the riverboat era. Okay. So this was the riverboats. This was before rail lines really took over. They were, they were running at that point in time, but uh, we, the only way that we could get up river were riverboats. This was the beginning. Everybody for the early South, you would put all your goods on a big old raft going down the Mississippi River, you'd head on down to New Orleans, you'd sell all your stuff, and then you'd have to walk home up to Ohio or Kentucky, right? Well, then riverboats come out, you can start going back up river. And, but these were dangerous ships. I mean, these were very dangerous. And uh, they're, they're boilers, they're burning. You know, this is steam-powered ships. And you can imagine in 1868, I believe, when it happened, that was not a good way to die by any means. And they, they put way too many men on that ship and that boiler blew up. And I, I got to tell you, telling these stories, this one in particular, I, I have to give this one at the same time credit to my sister because she's the one that's fascinated with some of those little micro histories. She's really into the river boats and really into some of those kind of little, those little nuggets of Southern culture that you don't hear a lot about. And the Sultana in particular, it's the largest maritime disaster that happened in North America a large over two, or was it, excuse me, it was over somewhere around 1,500 people died that day on this one steamboat. And it largely did not make it into the news or wasn't a big headline because it happened about a week after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. So a lot of people right. didn't hear about it because all of a sudden the country's just thrown in this kind of this next level turmoil post Civil War. So it's a, it's enjoyable. I really, that's what's wonderful is being able to pull these odd little nuggets of history that a lot of people haven't heard of out and really exposing people to them. And like you say, see how much humanity is there and that, that visceral, you know, what was just really exposed what the culture was like at that time too. I, I feel like too, the South is such a unique place with such a distinct identity that I think often gets short shrift because I think there are a lot of assumptions people make about the South, which are not entirely fair. And so the culture doesn't get it. And the history I think doesn't get its due. I think when people think the South, you know, I, I don't have to say the assumptions that come along with it. I, I think it's, you know, I think that's pretty well established. And I think they, they think of the civil war, you know, they think of, of conflict and they forget that there is, there is a rich 
mixture of, of cultures and history there. And that's something that I think Southern Gothic is so good at, at bringing to light and, and helping people to, to engage with without the baggage. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's definitely something. The goal has always been to inform and really take this, this very middle of the road historical approach. And, and since I do have an archivist on my side, everything has to be a primary or some type of source or secondary source that's, that's really reliable. You know, we, we really do try and even with ghost stories, right? I mean, that's what we're telling the majority of the time, these ghost stories and all, we really want to make sure that that what gets put around them and how we prop them up are, are coming from that. But uh, you're right. That's what's so fascinating. I was, I was joking with Paul earlier about he comes from a place where they have real history and here we are you know, like New Orleans is 1722, like that's like toddler size to him. Right. And, and, you know, <laughs> Southern is like the Southern culture though, is it's only like 250 years old. And what it is, is it's not even a unique culture in its own right. It's this smattering of all these people from all over the world who all got thrown into this gumbo of this area and brought with them all their ancestral culture. So, you know, like we were talking about the Appalachians and how this is the Scott Irish people came over and came over here and they're in these isolated communities and they bring with them all of their cultural elements, all of their folklore. And now they're interpreting this new world. And right next door to them, you know, you have down in Louisiana, you have all the French culture there. And then we're just going to throw in the mix of all the enslaved people from Africa that, that, are, that are trying to maintain their culture that have been forced over here into the South. And it just becomes this smattering of all these things. And, and we, as we peel apart this onion of ghost stories and folklore, you see these pieces like the, like the murder ballads that have roots in Scotland, in Ireland, but yet now have this, this kind of dark presence in Appalachia. Or, you know, we'll see things like, uh, we're going to tell swamp stories today. And uh, one of the one, I, I don't have this as one of my stories, but the Rougarou, which was like a swamp werewolf. And you can trace that back to the French Labette, right? Because they kind of took this tradition with them, the French people did. And uh, that's, that's what's really cool about the South. It's this really, we have only 250 years to work with, so it hasn't cohesively come together yet. And if there's anything that says anything about not really having one true cultural identity to the South, even though there's a stereotype, read my reviews. Apparently I don't sound like a Southerner. And man, I tell you, I was born and raised in Louisiana and I am living right South of Nashville, Tennessee. I got Southern babies and my, and the Sheck Snyder family's been here since 1721. So. <laughs> but by God, you don't sound like you've just finished chasing the Duke boys. So you don't belong to the South. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So as, as you mentioned, we are going to be telling swamp stories on this show. And it was one of those things where, you know, you and I were, we had a, a chat a couple of weeks back and we were trying to figure out what the, the topic would be. And I, I think that part of the South is so, I mean, it's not specific to that, but I, again, that's something I come to identify so strongly with the South is, is swamps and, and bayous. And we sort of have this unofficial motto on the show, which is don't fuck with the woods. <laughs> and and uh, recently, I found myself reading Gerald Posner's uh, Miami Babylon about the history of the history of Miami. And one of the things that that has that I learned in this is that Miami only exists because they dredged, they drained the swamps down in Florida. You know, this was all completely unusable hellscape. And then they, they, they drained the swamp and they, they built on it. And I, I can't think of any more 
pertinent a message for this show, then don't fuck with the swamp or you'll get Miami. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're probably going to get some of that out of my stories. Even is, Don't fuck with the swamp. You're right. I mean, shoot, I, you know, I didn't grow up in the swamp, right? I, we, we grew up right in New Orleans there, but we were about a mile from the Mississippi River. And the, um, not, not even a mile, shoot, we were about three blocks away from the Mississippi river and, and oh. the river there, you know, the river changes course and all. And, and during, mm. after the winter, when all the snow melts, the river actually comes up higher. So we have these levees, right? New Orleans is under sea level and we have these levees. And when the, when the water goes back down during the summer, it leaves this, I mean, probably, I don't want to, I, I guess maybe about, depending on where you're at half mile to a mile between the levee and the the where the river is now right of just wetland so what do you do when you're 10 years old and you're a boy you go play the goonies out there right you know you're <laughs> running around behind you know you're riding bikes and you're catching turtles and you know i mean and there's there was even some you know some spots where there would be ponds and you'd have to you know be aware of of water moccasins and alligators even out there and it yeah. um so i wasn't you know i wasn't exposed to the swamp in the grand scheme of things but it's definitely like a unique place where you can get into trouble. And it's definitely a unique place where you can have a whole lot of fun and you can, you can find the means to stay alive like the Cajun people did, right? You can find the means to be isolated and support yourself with fishing and turtles and all that stuff. But at the same time, man, you could die in a split second somewhere, just one wrong step and you're on a water moccasin mm -hmm. copperhead, something mm -hmm. else. So there's, they, we don't even need the paranormal to scare you out of the swamp. You know, we don't even need this stuff, man. I mean, I remember catching a snap internal that looked like a freaking dinosaur as we were a kid. We're pulling it out of the mud. That thing would have like taken our arm off. It was so big, you know, but it's, uh, so yeah, stay out of the swamps. Definitely please. And, and don't, if my kids are listening to this, don't do that at mama's house. <laughs> 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 and so growing up in, in New Orleans, speaking of the paranormal, did you have a lot of exposure to that when you were younger? Man, so I am, I am one of the weirdest people to be telling ghost stories because I have never had a personal experience at all, mm. and, but have been fascinated with it and have never stopped trying, right? So the, uh, the way we came by this in particular with New Orleans, just in general being the vibe, you know, obviously, you know, I grew up in the generation where you know, you know, where Anne Rice really kind of helped define that city. You know, I was, I, I, I can't remember when the movie came out with Brad Pitt and all, but that really helped kind of define, I want to say, I, I would, I, I wasn't a teenager yet. I was kind of early enough to really, I wasn't old enough to watch it, but did anyway type thing. Right. And that really helped <laughs> it was, it define, was, you know, that, that kind of gore. It was 94. Exactly. So I was, I was yeah. 11, 12, I think at that point, 11 or 12. And so it, it really, you know, it helped define where you were at and you knew that. But most of all, what, you know, what I had mentioned earlier was my parents, or Brianna and I's parents were in a genealogy before the internet. And so they did a lot of research and they were really, and this was their big hobby. You know, they were just obsessed mm. with that. And what that meant was that we were going to go every weekend, we were going to go out to some, some cemetery somewhere in the Mississippi river, out in Cajun country, up the wherever. And we were going to go take pictures of tombstones and do tombstone rubbing. And, you know, you're eight years old and you're miserable. I hated it. Right. They're taking us to libraries, <laughs> looking at microfilm, microfiche, but it just, I mean, it got in our blood, you know, and um, sure. clearly spending all that time at cemeteries, you know, I told you like, I mean, now, like I can't go past a cemetery without wandering in and just wanting to 
you know, soak it up now. It, it, it kind of got in me. So, you know, my, my experience of the paranormal came from that, of that, that realizing that, that these places, cemeteries in particular, when you walk around them, it's not that it's memorials to dead people. It's, you know, every couple of feet, you have a lifetime of stories under that tombstone. And it's mm. fascinating when you look at it that way and you walk through and especially an old family cemetery or something to, to, if you ever have the opportunity to go back to where your family might've been a hundred years ago and walk around the cemetery where all your ancestors are and, you know, see all the last, your last name or something somewhere in the middle of nowhere that or something of that nature. It really, it's really impactful that way. So that's really with New Orleans that vibe and that mix of of that that kind of heady nature academic lean that my parents had mixed with that Anne Rice stuff, man. I mean, you know, throwing a little a little heavy metal music and I was doomed. As simple as that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Do you think it allows you to be more balanced though, Brandon, when you're dealing with paranormal stories because you've not had your own personal experience that perhaps some of the more famous tale of a tale you're able to be a bit more critical with when you're sort of looking into it and, and obviously with your sister doing the research you're not sort of going in there with a preconceived idea of how this ghost story is supposed to be right well it's uh, there's a two-part answer to that you know i think from the perspective of i still go out on ghost hunts and stuff i'll still do a lot of these things as well but um i was just at waverly hills up in kentucky you know the big haunted sanatorium here you know it's supposed to be world famous for shadow people and we went and did in december did an overnight there and stayed overnight and um oh wow and i went i my girlfriend and i went and i had i had brought with me some of the tools you know i had like a spirit box and emf and all and you know i got there and kind of just decided because I, I haven't had an experience myself you know, I decided, you know what, I don't want to use these things. I just want to go and I want to sit. And we found a couple spots that I just want to sit here and soak it up and feel it and 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 kind of, I guess, wishful thinking, hope that I have some type of, you know, one of these shadow people or something. You know, I, I kind of thought like I should come to this since I haven't had one yet. I'm not chasing something that I've had, mm. right? I'm not chasing yeah. like an interaction on the spirit box to confirm it. Right. I'm not chasing something that, you know, that, um, you know, I, I want to have a pure organic experience. So when I go out and do stuff and visit some of the places we talk about, I usually go from that angle rather than from the traditional, or I don't want to say traditional, but that ghost hunter, you know, tools and, and things of that trade. But the research phase, a lot of what we do is more story related rather than paranormal focus. And I, I think there's a good, I think there's a, def, there's a wall a bit between the two. Let's put it that way. Right. Because right. when I say a story, you know, this story could be 200 years old and it could have nothing to do with a place actually being haunted. Right. You know, so if we go to oh, a good example, the Myrtle's plantation, for instance, right. And we go to the Myrtle's plantation and it's world renowned for Chloe. Well, Chloe's not real. It's an absolutely fabricated story. And, you right. know, being that, I, being that I, I've researched as much as I have from a, an academic or a, an evolutionary point of view of what these cultural pieces are, I can look at a story like Chloe and very quickly realize this was bogus. 
And it's almost got to the point right. since the South is as particular as it is, if you tell me a story and it has certain certain archetypes to it, we can even tell you what era the story might have come up, right? <laughs> so like, you know, because oh, there's wow. different eras in like kind of Southern culture of, you know, the Reconstruction era, you know, the grandkids of the grandkids of uh, of Confederate officers all had these certain archetypes they threw in the stories. And and Chloe's one that comes from the era of of haunted tourism being bees. Okay, and there's a there's a couple of southern archetypes that get thrown into these plantation stories that are like late 70s, early 80s. We're trying to turn plantations into B&Bs. And so it gives me the opportunity to go and see them from that angle of I'm not searching for Chloe. Okay, I'm trying to understand how the story was developed, how the story got here and what it says, but also being open to the fact that the Myrtle's plantation was in fact a plantation with a massive amount of trauma that happened there that the stories aren't telling you about. So mm, this doesn't mean that right. it might not be the most haunted home in America, like they like to say, but it ain't Chloe that's haunting the yeah. place, you know? So it right. kind of has given me this, this interesting view of, of, of actually being comfortable enough to go to a place and not automatically attributing something to what the story is. And being more open to it being anything, you know, it could, you know, this was for, for lack of a better term, it, these plantations were enslaved labor farms. There were, there is trauma at this place. Why is it this sure. one girl? Why is it this one person? So if that answers your question in any, any more specific way, you know, it's like, it's, you know, I mean, some people want to call me a skeptic and I'm like, well, shoot, would you, I mean, I went and sat in 20 degrees. I sat in Waverly Hills for six hours in 20 degree weather. <laughs> you know, looking for ghosts. Okay. Don't call me a skeptic. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) I think what you're talking about is, is really valuable because, you know, something Paul and I have talked about many times in the show is you don't have to make things up. There's enough weirdness out there that you, you just have to accept it. You don't have to try and come up with a narrative You don't have to try and it doesn't have to be a famous ghost. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't even have to make sense. You just have to accept that, okay, something happened. I don't have a frame of reference for this, but I saw what I saw, the end. And I I think as you're, as as you say, I I think so often these historical stories that just become used to sell merchandise or tours, they just distract us because I, I think they prevents us from engaging with what's actually happening. And I think it gives people who maybe don't believe or who aren't open to the possibility, it gives them more ammunition ammunition to say, oh, this is all bullshit. Because, right. you know, because they're going to have that knowledge base and say, well, that th- the story you're telling me doesn't line up with the, the, the historical events. Therefore, none of this is real. And of course, that doesn't, that calculus doesn't bear out. I mean, just because the history that is attributed to these events doesn't add up, doesn't mean the events themselves don't happen. But so often we just get the baby thrown out with the bathwater. And so that's why I think it's really valuable for someone who comes in and says, yeah, you know, this is happening or it isn't. I don't know. But the what the reason you have given for this, it's it's not real. So let's right. let's examine what what is real and what actually happened here. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's you know, you can take so many different angles, and it's what's fascinating about this. And I'm sure you guys uh, y'all spend so much time thinking about this as well and, and exploring these different things that it's the more, the deeper you get, the less you know at the same time, right? And oh, yeah. it's it's <laughs> almost like, you know, you become to this point where you're more skeptical about 
you're more skeptical than skeptics sometimes on a certain amount of it. But there's still this little percentage here that you realize is so vastly, you know, deeper than you ever imagined when you got here. And, um, you know, you can, you can really get into the esoteric and, and, and thought of some of the stuff of, you know, maybe uh, Chloe, for instance, right. You know, maybe, maybe Chloe really, you know, Chloe didn't exist in reality, but maybe Chloe does now exist as a spirit because this is like a trickster phenomenon or something. Right. So now because sure. we've created a story, we're now creating this entity that's manifesting itself as Chloe. And you can go all these different angles with it that, that just go down rabbit holes that could twist your brain around. And I, I'll, I think it's it's fascinating when you really do go into that kind of scientific or the the paranormal science of it or or that open ended you know being comfortable with not knowing <laughs> is really the reality, right? <laughs> I think one of the aspects of of these particular properties as well, Myrtle being a prime example, is yeah, you know, I'm sure it wasn't the worst plantation in the South. I'm sure there are far more traumatic and vicious incidents that have occurred in, in certain other forced labor places, Brandon. So it, it's surprising, I think, that as you refer to there about it being this sort of rebirth of trying to sort of put them onto the tourist map and bring people in saying, oh, well, well, come and stay here. We've got a ghost. It's surprising how one seems to have just made that leap to become, you know, obviously it's well known here in, in the UK, as is Waverly Hills, you know, so... It's surprising to me that why is that sanatorium become so famous in comparison with lots of others which may have had a, a higher death count? Surely it can't just be the shadow people. And it's it's trying to, like you say, unpick that germ of what caused it to cross over into popular culture rather than somewhere else where there's probably a, a, a deeper and darker history that might be more paranormal. Right. That's what I like to think we do at our best work when we do research is to take a story that has an origin or that has an origin maybe back over 100 years, 150 years, and to actually go back and find where it was published in different variations and watch it become what it is today. And that's what that's the part that at the end of the day, I know my sister as an archivist and a researcher and myself find the most fascinating is the game of telephone that happens to become this phenomenon, you know, and, and being able to see how each generation kind of puts its own little stamp. It's a, it's a lot of fun. I mean, this, mm. this field has just so much, it just so, it's so deep. And there's so many great minds that actually are thinking about it very, you know, very deep. And it's not, it's not as hokey as the TV shows want to make it out to be. You know, there are a lot of mm. people who are spending a lot of time really really looking at this in a, in a more serious way. So it's fascinating. Yeah. To give you a sense of what Southern Gothic is all about, Brandon's stories on this episode are going to be stories he is bringing to us. Paul and I are doing our, our, our usual thing, but Brandon's <laughs> stories are written by him from the, the history of the South. And I guess we'll just get to it. Mm -hmm. That means it's time for the stories. This story comes from what folks call Acadiana, which is the southern part of Louisiana west of New Orleans. It's out where the Cajuns settled back in the mid-18th century, and the place where you're most likely to find folks speaking French to this day. Well, according to Cajun folklore, 
There are supernatural entities in the marshes and bayous that take the form of glowing balls of light, entities known as Lafifalet. This glowing orb can range in size from a tiny candle flame to a large volleyball, and they only make themselves known at night, dancing across the horizon and the swamps. Cajun tradition identifies Lafifalet as mischievous fairies, either spirits or ghosts, but most legends claim that they are the souls of infants who died unbaptized. Others believe the spirits are those who escaped from purgatory or were sent back to earth to atone for their sins. But regardless of their origin, the Fifalay is almost always considered an omen of evil, and those who see them were advised not to follow them, as it could be deadly, although it's very likely that you won't even have that capacity to make that choice. The deadly fillet are thought to actively pursue their victims, appearing before them to unwittingly capture their attention. Once a person is enthralled by the glowing light, they will follow the fillet without question, and the further they walk, the more confused and lost they become, pulled deeper into the dangerous depths of the Louisiana swamps until that glowing orb leads them to an almost certain death. While the legends surrounding the Fifalet have been part of Cajun oral traditions for centuries, references to the phenomenon can be found in French-language newspapers as early as the mid-19th century. The following is an account of John Verrett's experience with the phenomenon as a child, but recorded back in 1989. John is a Native American of the Homa culture and grew up down in Terrebonne Parish, which is so far south in the Louisiana swamps it's hard to even call it land. John says, That's another thing, the Fifalet. That's the bad angel. The Fifalet, what they call it. You got the God angel and you got the devil angel, which you call a Fifalet. One of uncles was brave, brave enough. They said you put a needle up like this and that thing goes through the needle, comes out sparking on the other side, flies, fireflies. If you go somewhere, like you go on a lake like we used to do a lot of times, a lot of times you go across the water and you're going to see that light like a star across the lake. You figure, well, that's where I got to go. So that light starts moving around. You find out, you go in the wrong place, you hit the bank and you're not where you're supposed to go. That light's going to trick you. That's what you call a fifalet. That's what you call an angel, a bad angel. I don't believe you could hold them, but my uncle was brave enough to try. That thing passes there. It's like a big owl. It's about the size of an owl. That's another thing I didn't see, but somebody told me that. They was hunting alligator, and they were brave enough to use that needle and try it. They even shot at it. Take a gun and shoot at it. Didn't do no harm. The spark fly was still flying. Now, what John Verrett was referencing here with the needle is part of the legend that contends it to be protection from the mischievous spirit, as once it's in the ground before the fillet, the wisp cannot help but attempt to fit through the needle's eye, becoming so focused on this task that its intended victim is time to escape. A 1949 newspaper article from the Crowley Post Signal, a town just west of Lafayette, spoke of the superstition as well. It offers a different way to escape from the fillet's wrath giving another first-hand account. Local Mona Mel Mouton wrote in the paper, the Cajuns of only a generation or two ago explain it only as a mysterious fire 
which haunted the lonely wanderer. This only heightened their superstitious belief that it was evil. In fact, there was even a commonly held belief that a fifa lay near a house, pretended death. However, if someone put a knife or a sharp instrument on a post, the fifa lay would cut itself and so break the spell. My own papa once told me about the time a fifa lay was after him. He said, I was crossing the prairie, located in Acadia Parish, and in those days there were a few houses about and it was when I was on the wide open prairie that a fee-filet got after me. I started running, and when I'd look around, there it came right behind me. Then I saw the little cabin Mama used for a schoolhouse. I ran in and shut the doors and then looked around through the window, and there it was, the fee-filet. I ran to the other side of the cabin and peeped through a wide crack, and there, no doubt about it. But anyway... The dread fire didn't get my papa because he's still here to tell the tale. But the fee-filet are as well. I, I love that I have something in common with the, the fee-filet is that you give them the eye of the needle and they have no choice but to try and fit through it. It's like you give me some kind of task that's ridiculous. I, have no, I know I have to do it. I can't just leave it. And it, sure, it might kill me or I'll be captured, but by God, I'll try. And it's good to know that I've got that in common with the other side. <laughs> you keep, keep this mischievous podcaster out of trouble. <laughs> Give him a name. It's so interesting that so many cultures have stories of swamp lights. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, I mean. This is straight up a yeah. will of the wisp. This is absolutely the, the classic yeah. will of the wisp. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Paul, correct me if I'm wrong. There are stories from Hockamock Swamp in Massachusetts about swamp lights. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it. As we were saying about the origins of things, I love things like this because it 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 all depends. You can go to certain parts of the world and they'll have a very similar story, but they've just got a completely different name, as you say, like with Willow the Wisp or, or what goes on at Hockamock Swamp, where you have what people consider to be lights that give people the impression that safety might be at hand, so they go deeper and deeper until they get lost, or they fall into the water and drown, or they end up coming to a sticky end by meeting one of the local inhabitants from the animal population in there who was just looking for some tea. That, that is, you know, we were talking about how the, the Southern culture, how you do have these little segmented parts. And, and I think this one's cool, as you're saying here, is, is it really was, it is, it's Cajun folklore, right? So what you have is you have these French people who move to Canada, get kicked out of Canada, and then they get kicked all the way down to the swamps of Louisiana, get shoved over to the side. New Orleans doesn't even want them. They get put in this dark swamp. And the way that they interpret the swamp is still through the classic will of the wisp. It's, it still has this kind of classic vibe to it, even though they're experiencing something in a different, in a different realm. And, um, you know, I mean, the will of the wisp, I, they, there's theories about why these things exist with the swamp gases and all as well. But yet, yet, the stories in the folktale still kind of remain. And people say they still see them out there, man, you know? Not in a million years will you catch me following a light into the into the woods anywhere, but never mind a freaking swamp. I mean, there are ticks in swamps, guys. We're not doing this. <laughs> ticks are the least of your worries. What are you talking about? A tick, you can peel off you. Alligators, <laughs> eh, fine. Water moccasins, eh, fine. Lyme disease? No, we're not doing this. Is this an accurate reflection of their level of threat? No. Is this a crystal clear uh, vision into my diseased brain? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this it's funny the uh 
You're right. There's lights everywhere. There's one up in Arkansas. Is it the Garden Light? Have you heard of the Garden Light? And everybody, it's a railroad track, right? You got the the brown lights in North Carolina. We've got them all over, yeah. and just each one really does take on this this unique form that's kind of unique to that that culture and that place. But I mean, I grew up hearing about the FIFA. It was definitely something like your mama would talk about. And um, again, I wasn't deep in the swamp to to really be afraid of it. But you knew the story and you knew the tales and. And it's, it's one of those things where it's always like, you can even notice here with what I read, it's, it's almost always like somebody's papa told them this or somebody's, you know, uncle, uh, experienced this out in the swamp. And I, uh, I tell people, you know, when it, when it comes to stories, the it's, it's almost always like, uh, the oldest and the, and the ones that are really, you know, live through are always like these kind of warnings, like don't, you know, kids stay out of the swamp, like kids stay out of the forest, like you're saying, right? Like we want to scare the heck out of you to do something. And, you know, oh, you know, my uncle, he, he experienced this. And, um, you know, I, I have this one story just completely unrelated, but maybe, maybe I'll circle back if you really want to hear it. When I was growing (laughs) up, when I was growing up and I was a kid, I, um, my, my father used to tell me that if I did not finish eating my dinner, okay, Mr. Nolan would come and eat it. He'd put it outside and Mr. Nolan would come and eat it. And the way he made it sound was Mr. Nolan, I always thought that Mr. Nolan was this hermit that lived behind the levee. I told you guys about like behind the levee, he's kind of like a wetland place. And, um, you know, so he's like, you know, he was going to come in, you know, like I'd pictured this, you know, like, like big men and like furs or something coming out of the like wetlands to come and eat my dinner. You know, my dad said, oh, Mr. Nolan's going to come and eat your dinner. And, um, and I, and I, and I heard this story growing up and it stuck with me. And, um, we started, we started doing the podcast and a couple of years after I was at my sister's house down in new Orleans and I was just sitting there and it just, for some reason, remembered my father telling me this story about Mr. Nolan. And, and it hit me that like, oh, this is how stories get made. And I asked him about it and he said, oh, Mr. Nolan was my life insurance salesman. <laughs> and that was it. The whole origin, like you just, he came over one day for us to like sign some papers and you were freaked out by him. But like, I've remembered it entirely different. And I'm sitting at my sister's house telling my sister about this. I was like, this is how stories get made. I could have told my kids this. Had we lived, had we lived here next to the levee our family for like four generations, we could have made up our own fee filet out of Mr. Nolan eating children's food, <laughs> right? I kind of want to make him like a show mascot now. Bren, Bren don't say anything terrible on the recording. Otherwise, Mr. Nolan's coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come out from that swamp down Let's there. Go for it, boy. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, just before we move on to the next story, um, you mentioned Homa in there. And so I have a story, uh, one of my few paranormal stories from, from that region that happened to me personally. I, was, I went down to New Orleans for a conference in 2015 and New Orleans itself is, well, you know, it's, it's pretty full on. And so I just thought, you know what, I'm going to leave the city. I'm going to rent a car. I'm going to go explore. And I ended up in Homa somehow. And then I, I moved on to Thibodeau and I'd heard that somewhere between, somewhere in this area, and I don't remember where, there was a particular road that was said to be haunted. And so I thought, well, okay, obviously I got, I got to check this out. So I went cruising (laughs) and I remember I was driving down this road. There's tall, some kind of tall bush or tree or something. It was like a, I don't know if it would have been sugar cane or what. I'm not, I'm not naturally inclined, but it was some tall grass looking thing on either side of the road. And all of a sudden I felt this intense pressure in my chest. 
this intense pressure. And I remember I had this brief thought. I thought, well, this is how I go. This is, you know, the Captain Cholesterol has finally come for me. Mr. Nolan is here. <laughs> then I had this moment where I realized, no, this isn't, this isn't me. This, there's something else. Mm. This isn't coming from outside of me. And I, so I just tried to like, I tried to kind of think about it and sort of put a wall between me and it and just think like, okay, stop panicking. This is, you're not a, phys it's not a physical thing, but it just felt like this pressure collecting in my chest and I come around a bend. And that's when I realized that on either side of the road were preserved slave cabins. And I realized this is what I'm feeling. This collective, I don't, you know, I'm not going to say ghost or anything like that, but this collective heaviness, this, this, I don't know if it's remnant trauma or trauma or what, but it was palpable in the atmosphere. It was one of the most intense things I've ever felt. That, that part of the country is, little is understood about how, how heavy it was prior to the mm. civil war down there, you know? So that stretch, that stretch of the Mississippi river between New Orleans and Natchez, Mississippi I mean, there were more millionaires living there at that prior to the Civil War really? than New York. It was mm. they were churning out cotton. They were churning out sugar cane. I mean, there was indigo. There was all this. The, all the cash crops were right there. I mean, this was a mm. heavily, heavily enslaved plantations down there. You know, and that entire strip, that Mississippi River Road. If you if you drive up that river road, that's Plantation Alley nothing but plantations. And I mean, you could, I mean, we've even, we've talked about wanting to put, to write a book that's nothing but ghost stories of the river road because of so much trauma and it's both sides of the river as well. It wasn't just one side of the river, you know, they were churning out stuff. So, uh, they're really, that, that area was very, I mean, you're talking some of just some of the dark history that happened there even, um, there was a, a slave, the largest slave rebellion in the, in the country happened there in oh, 1812. Wow. Uh, happened there right on the river, about 30 miles outside of, uh, outside of New Orleans. And, um, you know, it was a couple of men. They, they slaughtered the family. Uh, they slaughtered the family at the plantation and started making their way to New Orleans, you know, and tried to pick up more, more, more enslaved people as they went down and, you know, and they tried to get away. And, and I tell you, it was brutal and it was vicious because- you know, they were finally stopped and their heads were put on oh bikes on the levee mm. to just show just the, the viciousness of what was there. So, mm. you know, that neck of the woods, we sometimes we talk about how the French culture, how it, the French and Spanish culture, how it impacted that that area as being a little bit more. Um, what would the word be? A little I don't want to say lenient by any means. There was there was a, a code noir in New Orleans to where there was a level of of those people were treated like they did have souls, right? Like the very right. least, right? Like mm. is awful, you know, like this was a, a Catholic, you know, a, a Catholic colony early on. And so, you know, there was the Catholic tradition of even getting like Sunday off and things like that, but it was still brutally vicious in order to keep those, you know, keep that enslaved culture because there were so many people there. And, and after, you know, after the revolution in Haiti over there, you know, or, or what resulted in Haiti, it was even more fear in that French colony because of that, mm. because the enslaved population overthrew that island there. And, you know, Louisiana really tried to put the clamps down. So, so that neck of the woods, you know, that, that Mississippi river road, it's, it is heavy and it's still, I, I, I think it's still heavy to this day, you know, because a lot of the families, my own family, that's where the Schecksniders are from. It was called the German coast. And, 
after the Civil War and after the economy had to change off of enslaved labor, a lot of the people who were making all that money left. And they mm -hmm. left. And what now you see when it comes to the demographic of the river is a massive amount of the population who, you know, it's, it is a, a fairly large black population that was unable to economically leave a place where the economy left. Right. And so it's yeah. very impoverished on that river now and very reliant on kind of the oil industry and some things like that, if they're able to. Um, so, so today where all these millionaires once were in these beautiful plantations, there's a lot of poverty today. So mm. it's a, it's a heavy part of the, the state for sure out there. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Heels. My encounter happened in the mid-1980s, in a swampy area of South Florida outside Homestead. My father called it the East Glade, some folks called it the Double Canals. It's a very flat area, fairly large, five miles by eight miles, where corn and potatoes are grown in the winter with a mix of willow, buttonwood, scrub oak, sawgrass, and cattail slough. It is crisscrossed with small drainage ditches that we called jumpers, because they were just wide enough to jump across. There were also some larger ditches and two large canals, hence double canals. It was late afternoon and the temperature was cold for subtropical Florida, around the mid-50s, expected to drop to the low 40s by night. My buddy Denny and I had been fishing the jumpers about smack in the middle of the glade, on the edge where the farms yielded to the swamp. About an hour and a half before sunset, I saw a figure approaching us from the swamp, about three quarters of a mile down the road. Denny was around a corner out of sight, so at the time I was alone near the car. I knew it was a person, but it was moving slowly, and consequently I didn't pay much mind and continued fishing, making sure to keep an eye on it. Thirty minutes on, and I could make out that the approaching form was a woman. As she drew closer, I could tell she was barefoot, wearing only a long pink t-shirt with a teddy bear on it, the kind young girls sleep in. When she finally got close enough to talk to me, I could see she had been out there for a while. Her build was slight, her mouse brown hair lank, as if it had been wetted down earlier in the day and not brushed very well. Her feet were oddly clean considering how far she'd walked in the bush, and her skin was slightly ashen but not pale, and she was unblemished and apparently unharmed. What's more is that she didn't seem to be particularly distressed, which, given her situation, may have been the oddest thing of all. This mystery woman asked me for a cigarette. When I told her I had none, she gave me a blank look. "'What the hell are you doing out here?' I asked. "'I've been swimming with the alligators,' she replied. "'This may not seem very charitable, but I figured she was a prostitute who had been left out here by some cruel John, so I asked her how she came to be out in the swamp. "'They left me here,' is all she would say. "'We were planning to be here for a while,' I said. "'But if you need help, then we can take you back to town now.' She fixed me with a look I couldn't identify. I have nowhere to go, she said. That left me nonplussed, and I took a minute before responding. <sighs> I can't leave you out here, so how's about we run you into town and drop you at the nearest gas station? I can give you some cash for food and bus fare. She nodded and quietly said, I'll wait over there. She then walked about 50 feet in front of my car, 
squatted down in the road and pulled the t-shirt over her knees. A sense of unreality started to creep over me, so I went to find Danny to explain the situation as I understood it. A prostitute had been abandoned out here to the alligators, and we had to take her somewhere safe. Or, at least safer than here. We tried to figure out the best place to leave her without making it look like we were a couple creeps dropping off someone far too young for us. Just before I went back to the car, Denny asked if she had propositioned me. I said she hadn't. He frowned and said he thought that was strange. I shrugged. Denny then asked if she could be setting us up to get rolled, but I said no for two reasons. One, she had walked a long, long way and I hadn't seen anyone that entire time. Two, I was strapped, and anyone who messed with us was either going to see the error of their ways or the face of God. Denny walked back to the girl with me, and the three of us got in my Chevelle. On the drive into town, Denny asked the same questions I had, and got the same answers. Swimming with alligators. Not gators, but alligators. The difference seemed important. And that they left her out there. She also said she didn't have any more friends in town, that they were all gone. After that, we rode in silence. About half a mile from the paved road, she blurted out, I forgot my shoes. I told her she could always get more shoes. Hell, I'd buy her shoes if she couldn't afford another pair. But it was getting dark, and there was no way I was heading back out there at night to try rooting around for shoes. She wasn't having it, and demanded we let her out. I must have my high heels, she said, and it sounded unhinged enough I wasn't going to argue. We pulled over, and she jumped out the back door. As soon as it had banged shut, Denny let out a breath. Jimmy, you know that was a ghost, right? I looked at him. The hell are you talking about? Look in the rearview mirror. Tell me what you see. I did just that, saw nothing, and told him so. Then where did she go, Jimmy? What I can only describe as a bolt of cold exploded in my chest. It was right. She had literally just gotten out of the car and was nowhere to be found. The road we were on was white rock, 50 feet wide and surrounded by flat, freshly painted farm fields. Even in the gathering dusk, there was nowhere for someone to disappear to. At least not anyone living. Still, I couldn't believe it, and I told Denny he was full of shit. He sighed and turned around, placing his hand on what had recently been her car seat. Feel it, Jimmy. I did. Ice cold. How did you not notice that she had no smell? Someone spends a day wandering barefoot in the South Florida swamp and has no odor whatsoever? Jimbo, that poor girl was dead. I didn't hardly tell anyone about it except my wife, till one afternoon while chatting with my father. I told him the story, and he got real quiet. He looked me dead in the eye and said he'd seen the same girl in the same area 50 years before. He said the difference was she was naked, except for a pair of high-heeled shoes, but didn't act like someone who was approaching a stranger totally nude. When she got within earshot, she asked him the same question. Do you have a cigarette? My father told me that she had been out there for a long, long time, and no one knew how to help. I've heard of the lady in white, but the lady in high heels is a new one right there. <laughs> the lady in the in the uh, teddy bear t-shirt doesn't have quite... That actually sounds like a Buddy Holly song. <laughs> I'm very interested how, when they see her, she's wearing a teddy bear t-shirt, but his father said she was simply wearing high heels. So how's that work then? If we just accept this one at face value, I think it goes some distance towards this, the notion that if someone dies and they're stuck in this kind of loop, that they have some control, but they may not even be aware mm. of how much control they have. You know, like if, if maybe they have some kind of baseline awareness of how they're presenting themselves, but 
but again, they don't necessarily realize they have that control. Yeah. Yeah. Or it could be, you know, one of those typical situations where different people see a different version of it. That's That was my more point rather than sort of scoffing at it and saying, oh, well, they describe different things. Interesting that they've seen the same person, but in right. slightly different states of dress. Yeah. I mean, we can't rule out that being, because this is Florida, we don't just have two different people in real states of distress 50 years apart. <laughs> well, there is that sort of thing. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, I, this, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier too, is, is I wonder sometimes of, uh, does it appear to different people based on their presumptions of what it is? Yeah. So what is yeah. distress to, to the father versus <laughs> what is distress to the son and, and what, what goes on in their brain? And, and how would you, if this is a trickster rather than someone in distress is how do I, you know, maybe dad's a little more pervy, right? And so, so, so we're, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to get him a little... You know, and, and, the, and the son's a little more good natured and wants to help, right? Imagine having that thought and you realize the only way your dad was going to help someone is if they were buck ass naked wearing high heels. I shudder to think what my children will know one day. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I had a vasectomy, so no one would ever find out. <laughs> or, of course, you could, you could perhaps suggest that the longer it's gone on, the more powerful she's become. So in 20 years time, will she be wearing a skirt as well as it? teddy bear t-shirt oh see I, I extrapolated that way out i had her in like mech armor like pacific rim <laughs> <laughs> just stomping through cities laying waste to all those who have failed to help her in the years past mm. what was okay. the the time on on the story when when did this happen uh said mid 1980s it's the dad 50s so we're talking 30s and yeah i'm just curious about attire wise you know when you think about like a teddy bear t-shirt in the 80s I mean, it's like Care Bears, right? I mean, yeah. it's- Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been popular at that point in time is, is something to, huh. Would, the other thing that's fascinating too is the, the, the differentiation between gators and alligator about why yeah. trying to be that specific. What does that play into this as well when you talk about the story of, of a ghost versus, you know, what is actually- or what's threatening them in the swamp aside from this entity, right? And to want to put such a fine point on that. Sometimes in researching these, you come across, you know, people don't necessarily understand what details are important. So I think that can have some impact on it. You know, people don't necessarily understand that what's significant to them may not be significant to the larger narrative. Although in this case, I think it shows maybe a certain amount of displacement. You know, it shows that this person is not, maybe not uh, from around here in a noticeable way. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. what I took from it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is a dangerous animal. I'm recognizing that I have no understanding of how dangerous this is or what to deal with it, but yet still it's not as scary as this woman in the teddy bear t-shirt. Yeah. I mean, the gator gets my vote, but I've seen those things and they look like living knives. <laughs> <laughs> They're just as scared of you as you are of it. Yeah, but I can't beat the shit out of them the way they can me. So. <laughs> oh man. You could be like that man the other day, I think that was in Florida, who had decided he was getting really annoyed about alligators harassing him and his dog on his walk, and one came for him, so he shot it four times. Wow. Okay. Saved his dog. Man. That, I don't know if there is a more American story. <laughs> <laughs> got a Florida man, you have guns, you yep. got uh, uh, your dog, I mean, protecting your, stand your ground. That's a very- yeah. That's it. <laughs> uh, now, I've never been out to, you know, the, the, the Florida swamp. I wonder what's different about that when, when the way they described it, you know, I picture it 
the way that that I picture like Louisiana swamps, but you know, he talks about kind of like the 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 jumping across and the that kind of what did they was it the puddle jumps or what did he, he say in there? Uh, the jump jumpers, the jumpers, yeah, and just just thinking about that in terms of what it looked like. I mean, I, I wonder if it's you know like in Louisiana, it just it feels like like nothing is safe to stand on when you're that mm. that in that that deep right that depth right. and maybe it's because i grew up in the quicksand generation but you know <laughs> like it's it just that's what it seems to me so the the idea of being somewhere that you know the puddle jumps and and it to appear there in the middle of of that is i don't know i, I try and i'm trying to picture how fear-filled you would be and how odd, displaced you are like you're saying to begin with to even notice that so I'm thinking, you know, a long time ago, I was in a cab in Northern Ireland and I was talking to the cabbie and he was from Algeria. It was back in 08. And I asked him if he gets home very much. And he said, no. He said, for one thing, he said, the color of my skin, he said, it takes me a hundred years to get on a plane anyways. And he said, also right now there's a lot of trouble in Algeria. He said, kidnapping is a thing. Kidnapping of people is a thing. They kidnap you and they ransom you back to your families and he said, I, I just can't deal with it. The thought of that scares the shit out of me. He said, I've been, I've been living away too long. But he said, my family teases me about it. He said, because they, they say, oh, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's, the odds of it happening to you are very slim. And he said, yeah, but, but they could happen. He said, I, well, where I live, that, that's just, I've been in, in Northern Ireland so long, this is not a concern for me. But he said to them, it's just part of their baseline is like, oh, okay, so they could get kidnapped today, but probably not. So for, imagine like how high a threat has to be to rate above that, you know, like you really get, something's really got to be terrifying in order to register on that scale. And that's why this one really strikes me, this particular story from Florida, because living in Florida already is like being in a room full of angry bees. <laughs> and so for something to really register on your Florida radar, it's got to go above and beyond, above and beyond. Now you are constantly surrounded by gunshots and alligators and I assume sentient plants who just eat children. So for something to register, that really had to scare them. Now, how does that, the, the other thing, you know, I, I joked about the lady in white. I mean, how do you guys look at a story like this where you have that kind of, uh, it fits that, that kind of classic archetype narrative now, right? So that classic, I mean, the, the hitchhiker look back in the back of the seat and then she's gone and the seat's wet or, you know, that classic, um, you know, driving down the road and this it's gone. And then, you know, the, you pull up to the house and the father says, Oh, you know, my daughter's died. And, and mm. so I decide to go to the cemetery and my jacket is on the tombstone you <laughs> yeah. know, that I gave the girl, you, you know, you know, this kind of, I mean, those yeah. are really classic, you know, I mean, like that's so, was it that show supernatural? That was like the first episode was mm. one of these yeah, hitchhiker, you know, and right. You know, so as 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 folks like y'all who, who who look at ghost stories in this more macro sense and from that paranormal thing, like how do you marry these two? Where where you read a story and obviously this guy saw something, his 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 father sees something as well, and and they're able to to recognize that this has been recurring, but we also know that this happens everywhere else. And what does that say about it from a micro to a macro sense? And my mm. or am I just being too nerdy? I'm curious about your take on it. Paul, thinky things are your department. So, (laughs) (laughs) Professor. (laughs) Hardly. The Hitchhiker Ghost is one of my favorite ones um, because here in the UK, we've got two fabulous stories. We've got the the White Lady of Bluebell Hill, um, where we've got an actual event 
that caused it, and it's happened ever since. So there was a, a, a lady killed coming home from her hen night in 1965, um, and she was involved, sadly, on a, a head-on car crash the, the night before she was due to get married, and she sadly died in hospital. And since then, people have seen a lady in white, though obviously clearly on the night she went out, and she wasn't wearing a wedding dress. So a lot of people have created that. And it's one of those where people have said, oh, well, it's just a tale of a tale. It's a sad event. And, and people have created it. But there is an interview out there with a guy who picked her up and he went to the police because she disappeared as he was driving down the road. So mm -hmm. they're the ones that kind of set it apart when you've got somebody who's who's willing to come forward and say, well, this actually happened to me. And it terrified me that much. I went to the police because often, you know, you'll, you might go to a bar or something and somebody says, oh, have you heard about such and such? And they tell you the, the usual cliched versions of it. And I think when you have something that's slightly different or a, it pulls it away from what you expect, then it, it, it tends to give a bit more credence to it, I think, for me. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and the other famous one is a carpet fitter who lived in Bedfordshire who was driving down a road and he stopped to pick somebody up and they didn't really say anything. And they just pointed when he said, where do you want to go? And he set off and he said, Oh, do you want a cigarette? And he went to pass him a cigarette and he'd vanished. And he was the mm. same. And he went on television and talked about it. And they interviewed everybody that seen him because he went straight to the pub because his, his <laughs> way to deal with it was yeah. he needed a double brandy. <laughs> But well, he also went to the police. So I think there there are so many where you can kind of say, oh, well, it's just, you know, it's just the standard cliched phantom hitchhiker. And then there are ones that just tend to, for me, elevate them away from yeah. the from the chaff, really. Yeah. I guess that's and what I we talked about earlier, right? Is we said, you know, it's like 90, wait, the more you read these and the more of these stories and you hear, you know, this this thing that really sounds like it's a personal account is that that 99% you hear it and you're like, oh, this is bogus, just reiterating other stuff versus that 1% now where you're like, whoa, I got nothing here, right? There's just, yeah. Yeah. And I think what can happen is I think real life accounts, things which happen because, you know, I, I've had things happen to me, which I still don't, I mean, I didn't have a frame of reference for until I got really into the paranormal. You know, I, I was an atheist, like, I didn't believe anything. None of it's real. I just started collecting ghost stories because it was something to do. And then I had an experience and I had no frame of reference for it until I started reading more. And I realized, you know, I Googled shadows in the shape of people and mm -hmm. I discovered that shadow people were a thing. I had no idea. And I, so I think there are real things which happen, but we, you know, like I'm the, if I'm learning something, I'm the worst for losing detail. I remember the general thrust of the thing, but I will lose the specific details. I can't remember na names and dates for shit. There's a reason I didn't go to college. And I think that happens generally with, with cultural narrative around this stuff. There's going to be a story later in the show where one person in a car sees one thing and then someone else sees what they describe as a white mist. And so I think over time, say, you know, I saw a woman running across the road, you saw a white mist. Oh, it was, it must've been a lady in white. That's why you saw, and we, we do that kind of, we do that mental calculus and then we just say, oh, it was a lady in white. And I think all people remember is, oh, it was a lady in white. Mm. You know, our, our, we had a patron once ask us, why are ghosts always in Victorian clothes? And that's just 
patently not true. It's just that what people remember, the stories that kind of achieve penetration into the larger consciousness, they, they can only do so by being paired back to their simplest elements. And so that is kind of what survives the, you know, the blood brain barrier is this, this um, stripped down story of you know, ghosts in Victorian clothes, because that is the easiest narrative to tell. You know, oh, I saw a ghost, like there's a story from Rillestoke. I, someone saw this guy working at the dam and he was wearing safety gear and they, at first they thought, yeah, safety gear, of course. But then they kind of realized, hang on, that's old safety gear. Like th that's maybe 20 years out of date. So they went to fault. They went into the control room where this guy went to go see what the hell he was doing. He was gone. And there's no way he could have come back out without these people running into him. And the control room was, was, you know, it was a closed, a closed place. There was no exit. So they saw him go in. He just didn't come back out, but that doesn't have the meme ability. Uh, and when I say meme, I mean it in the term of like a thought. I don't mean like a, like a visual meme. I mean like meme as a thought, as a, you know, a function of the yeah. brain. It doesn't have the same simplicity that allows it to persist like something in the same way, like something a lady in white does. So I think what happens is these, these more nuanced stories get swept, get sucked up into this, get sucked up into this system, which shaves off their edges in order to make them digestible. And in that process, they just kind of get sorted into bins. So lady in white, you know, phantom hitchhiker, so on and so forth. And that way, again, it, it becomes easy to digest, but also becomes easy to dismiss because you say, oh, they're all, all these phantom hitchhiker stories. Yeah. You know, the guy, the guy disappeared in the car. Well, in this case, she got out of the car. She asked to be let out of the car. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that suddenly she disappeared. But as we're talking about it in retrospect, we're referring to it as all, you know, these hitchhikers who disappear. And I think it's, it's so easy, even with people like us who are good with narrative, it's so easy to let that happen because you already start trying to fit it into the box in order to get our heads around it. If that makes sense? You're better at that thinky thinky stuff than you give yourself credit for. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's very, I mean, that, that is perceptive. You know, just, just one little thing that I would add to that is, you know, you're talking about, about those, those, those are big elements to wrap your head around, which is absolutely, I agree with you. Uh, there's something like Jungian about that, right? But, you know, when we see modern stories or we see somebody talk about, you know, a why aren't there any ghosts with cell phones, right? Well, I mean, we do hear stories like that, you know, and you, but usually they're so personal, right? Mm. Like they're always yeah. a story where it's like, you know, you're, you're sitting on bed, you're sitting on your bed as a kid and, you know, like your grandmother, is, you know, says something to you and your grandmother's there. And then you find out, you know, your grandmother just passed away or you, know, yep. you hear stories like, you know, or these things of, or like somebody that was in your life comes back and, they just, because they're so intimately personal, they don't hit that archetypal category to break yeah. out of that, you know? And I yeah. think they're easy to dismiss in a different way, yeah. you know, and, and to kind of don't hit that realm. But, uh, you know, the alternative is, uh, you know, I kind of get geeked out sometimes with some of these stories that do have a much more, a more modern feel and uh, become Hollywooded. And the mm. folks' families are still here to see it, you know? Oh, there's, yeah. There's some really, I, you know, those sometimes will upset me. I know like the, um, down here in Atlanta, there's, by Lake Lanier, is, there's a story about a, a, a hitchhiker on the Gainesville Bridge. And it was from the woman, uh, was in a car, two, there's two women 
went off the bridge and they couldn't find oh, the car yeah, for like yeah. decades. Because she's a lady in blue, okay? And she yes. walked the bridge. And I went down there um, because it's, and Atlanta's really cool. I, I, I really like traveling to a lot of these places and mm-hmm. uh, we'll take weekends to go to places. And I went down there and actually went and found the where she was buried. I went to the cemetery where the woman was buried. And this happened, I believe, in 1957 when she died. And she'd become this, this archetypal hitchhiker. Yeah. And we went to the cemetery and there was a little, a little thing there that was on, you know, there's some flowers and there was something there that said, I love you, mom. Okay. And so mm-hmm. somebody had left. Now I know her son, her son lived into his seventies and he passed away. So he'd been passed away. And that, that little thing that said, I love you, mom. Clearly it sat there for years, yeah. but it really hits home that we're telling this story about someone whose family is still, is still here to hear it. You know, so to yeah. do it justice and to really respect it either as a story or an actual event is is a is a whole other element. I, I don't mean to diverge from where you're at. But. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind when you're telling these stories. It's it's entertainment, but it's not just entertainment. And I think we have to be really careful about where we draw that line. Hmm. So that's why it's easier to tell Victorian stories. You know. Grave walking. My church's cemetery is located across the highway from the church itself and up the hill from a river bottom swamp. I will relate the first experiences that occurred at the cemetery and then add in what happened a few years later. The first incident that occurred was when I was 18 years old. At the time, the church cemetery was surrounded by a chain link fence with hedges and trees grown up through it. I did a service project that removed the fence on two sides and cleared out all the brush and cut down three of the oak trees at the entrance gate so that their roots would not destroy any more graves. The project lasted three separate weekends and nothing strange happened until the pictures were developed. A few of the pictures showed white round objects and white squiggly lines in the air over the project or up towards the sky above. In the following years, I attended many funerals in that churchyard and laid my best friend to rest without incident. And then, three summers ago, that changed. My buddy Greg and I decided to clean up an overgrown corner where some idiot decided to plant two giant azalea bushes along with a camellia on a family section. The plants had grown so badly out of control that when we finally cleared it, we found eight graves the church had forgotten about six more undocumented sunken depressions. Apart from getting some poison ivy on us, nothing of interest happened during the clearing. We would work it until it was too dark to see and then go home. After five days of hacking, digging and re-leveling the dirt, we finally had everything looking presentable. When it was getting towards dark on our last day, I decided to snap some cell phone photos to show the church how much better the place looked. Nothing paranormal happened or appeared on the photos. I thought I had a couple of orbs and streaks, but quickly debunked them as flying bugs when I swallowed one a few minutes later. All of the families were happy that we'd made the cemetery presentable and uncovered things buried or lost for decades. We'd also started a mystery by finding eight new unknown and unmarked graves, which will forever be a mystery. The church records that that cemetery was always a church cemetery, Yet some graves predate the founding of the church by over 20 years. 
It was in this older part, only about 15 graves, that things happened one afternoon in May of that year. I was a bit late showing up for cutting, and so Greg arrived earlier than I. When I showed up, he was unhooking his lawnmower and was surprised I wasn't sweaty. I told him I'd just got in, and he was even more surprised. He said that there was a man walking around the cemetery when he pulled up, and he assumed it was me starting early, and that I had parked somewhere round the back or something. I have no idea who or what he saw, because I arrived barely a minute after him, and no one was there. We brushed it off and got to work, cutting grass for a few hours until dark. Then I had my experience. Greg was hooking his mower back onto the trailer. It was the last legal shooting light of day. Dark enough I finally decided to stop weed eating because I could barely see the grass. I was in the old section by a row of family I'm related to and felt a bit uneasy, but figured it was because it was getting dark in a freaky cemetery. I killed my weed eater and took a step to head out when I heard another step just to the side of me. Nobody was there. I took another and heard it again. I thought it was just my hearing having been shot by the weed eater and went on walking. I made it about four more steps when I heard it again. The running pitter-patter of smaller feet on a shorter stride trying to keep up. You could hear the grass crunching from the steps. The air felt electrified and I heard buzzing in my ears that sounded exactly like it did the couple of times I've been electrocuted. Then I heard laughter and feet running beside me while I was motionless. The hair on my neck stood at attention. The only time that's ever happened. I threw my weed eater into the back of my truck, waved at Greg and got the hell out of there. Next time we talked, I told him what happened and he good-naturedly gave me heck for leaving him to fend for himself against a ghost. But man alive, there was no way I was staying. I think the first thing that caught me about that story was the bit where he says, I lay, and I know this is kind of dark, but I laid my best friend to rest without incident. Like he was expecting them to punch through the, the lid of the casket and just start gnawing on necks. I camped out in the graveyard for eight weeks just to make sure he didn't come back. <laughs> now I picture Bruce Campbell as you say that. <laughs> or uh, have you ever seen, uh, oh, of course, have you ever seen Della Morte, Della Moore? Oh, I don't think so. It's, uh, I think Rupert Everett stars in that one. It was released in the, in uh, North America, Cemetery Man, it would, but it was cut Oh, down. yes. Yeah. That's what we call it here. Yeah. Yeah. So if you ever get a chance, Della Morte, Della Moore, it's, uh, it's about this guy who lives or works in a cemetery where the dead periodically come back to life and his job is to put them back down. So maybe, who knows, maybe this is what we found. It, we just, uh, it was a documentary and I didn't know it. <laughs> 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 I tell you, man, I, you know, I, I joke about, you know, loving to go to cemeteries all the time and all, but there's still something about being at one at night where, you know, hearing mm. a story like that, it, it chills you, man. It, it doesn't matter what you believe or don't believe it. It's not always like a clear incident free experience. You never know what you're going to run into. It doesn't even have to be paranormal. I mean, mm. people, <laughs> Paul, they, I hear they get up to stuff in cemeteries. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you don't know anything about that. Uh, apparently so. Did, did we just stumble into a personal story? <laughs> I, I don't know. That depends on how open Mr. Bestel's feeling today. <laughs> oh, no. <clears throat> 
Moving on. I'll <laughs> <laughs> oh, just leave that one to your imagination, listeners. Uh, yeah, this is- yeah. Uh, well, strangely enough, I, I grew up in a in a converted vicarage as a as a young child, Brandon, which was haunted anyway. Um, uh-huh. But my my front door was thirty yards away from the local graveyard. Oh man, that that'll do it right there. Uh, that'll bring you. You know, one of the things fascinating about living here, where I live in Tennessee, is you know, so much of this was family farmland for, you know, hundreds yeah. of years or, you know, a few hundred yeah, yeah. years that you have the c- cemeteries in the weirdest of places, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and, and like little, like, you know, little family cemeteries like this. So the, so we have just by the target down the road, you know, mm. right on the side of the, right on the side of the parking lot is like five tombstones just in oh, the middle wow. of the city right there. You know, there's another one, you know, you drive over, there's, there's a part of town over here, um, it's all this, it's kind of like the business area, right? Where all the big, you know, office buildings are for rent and all. And, you know, some of the car manufacturing companies are over there. And same thing, there's a parking lot and you could have your office looking out right across and there's cemetery, half dozen tombstones in the middle of parking lot right there. Mm-hmm. I, that's always, that's always been wild to me of the thought of what was here. Yeah. <laughs> Remind yourself for a minute, you know, this is, <laughs> and maybe that's ghost stories all around, right? Like, this wasn't always ours. <laughs> you know, you're a blip on the radar, son. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's when certain places over here, there are some specific locations where you've you've got a church that's been built next to a, uh, a Neolithic monument or, or something from the, the Stone Age. And there's a, there's a place out towards East Yorkshire where you've got a church, a monolith, and a Roman grave all within... 50 yards of each other all in the same plot of land man again y'all got real history (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting how certain places seem to magnetize people towards them for for whatever purpose in regards to burials but uh, like you say with that kind of location they're going to be all over the place and uh, you can be walking through a forest and i would imagine you might stumble across a, a a family plot somewhere oh absolutely you you guys i mean you you've heard of find a grave do you all use find a grave? Oh, yeah. My wife and I yeah. will do find a grave requests for people. I just, some of the most fascinating little places, and you never go see or anything, you know, just be on a family plot. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, there's definitely that yeah, cemeteries are my in first garden. Love. <laughs> in your front garden? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It was a small child, and the, the, the tombstone was about a foot down. Uh-huh. So, was that the there. source? Of your haunting then? I mean, was we that- We think so, because it started after we found the grave. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. A very hygienic ghost. I was, I was used to flush the toilet and we knew things were about to start. <laughs> <laughs> oh I mean, uh, you know, a child was probably potty training when it passed. So. <laughs> well, good for <laughs> it. Can we lure that ghost here? Because my roommates aren't always good at that. <laughs> The Silk Lady of Madisonville, Louisiana. Madisonville, Louisiana sits on the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain, not far from New Orleans. There, the spirit of a woman known as the Silk Lady is said to linger on the outskirts of town in an area known as the Palmetto Flat. What her name was in life is unknown, but her legacy lives on in local lore. It's said that this woman lived on the edge of Madisonville back in the early 19th century and that she was betrothed to a young man. One fateful day, she set out to meet him in town 
But while riding her trusty horse through the forest, something spooked the beast, and she was thrown from its back, striking her head on the hard ground. Tragically, she died alone there in those wetlands, with no one to hear her cries. Yet her spirit still lingers on in the Palmetto Flat, and they call her the Silk Lady, for the long white dress she wears, made of the finest silk. Her hair is long and white, as are her fingernails, and she is a haunting figure to behold. Over the years, many have claimed to have seen her wandering the swamps where she once resided, and while some have seen her apparition, most know her by her banshee-like shrieks that echo through the stillness of the night, sending shivers down the spines of those who hear them. The following is a first-hand account of a lifelong Madisonville resident, Peter Gitz, recorded on September 30, 1990, and published in a book titled Swapping Stories, Folk Tales from Louisiana. When I was about 12 or 14 years old, on Bayou Desire, I used to set up traps. It was in the Palmetto Flat area. I was always leery of the Silk Lady. One day I was back there running my traps, and it was late in the evening. I'd always run late in the evening. I had mink traps, and I used to catch mink and coon and some small muskrat. But I got caught back there in the dark, and the moon was just coming up. And I tell you, I heard this sound that they always said that she done. I'll describe it. It seemed like a scream, like a high-pitched moaning noise. I tell you what, I burned that swamp up getting out. Since then, I've heard it three times. The next time I heard the scream coming from the farm, just about dark. I knew it was getting late. It was in the fall of the year, and the moon was just coming up. The palmetto flat was between my house and where I was coming from the farm, and the moon was shining, and I could see in the swamps like a silk glow. I stopped. I was almost too afraid to run. The first time I've seen it, it looked like a glow. She was standing there, with not a foot on the ground, just like she was floating. I'm talking about a hundred feet away from me, too, so I kept looking at her, and I just kept walking slow. All at once, she screamed again. She screamed a high-pitched moaning noise, and all I could do was run. I run home, and I got in my house. When my mother asked what was wrong. I said, I seen the silk lady. She said, you ain't seen the silk lady. There's not such a thing as the silk lady. But to this day, I believe I've seen the silk lady. The next time, I guess, I was about 12 years old, and we used to keep a horse at the house that we used to plow. I had an old harness on the horse, and we was plowing at the house. I was coming back, and the horse never has reared up with me on him. But he reared up that day, threw me off, stampeded to the house without the harness on, and I heard the scream again. I got up, and I ran to the house. That's when I was about 12 years old. The last time that I heard the Silk Lady was in about 1947. That was the year after the hurricane. All the trees was knocked down, we had high water, the swamp was covered with about four foot of water, and just when the water went down, I was coming again from the farm, and that's when I seen her. It looked like she was floating there, among the palmettos. She was glowing, and you could see her long fingernails. She had long, straight hair. Her whole body glowed white silk. I just kept on walking slow, and she screamed at me again. 
She'd done the same scream, a high-pitched moaning noise, like she was trying to tell me something. I don't know if she was afraid of that storm or that it had chased her out of the swamp or what, but I just ran. And that was the last time that I seen the Silk Lady. And that was in 1947. Now today, this area that Peter references has been developed into a residential district. And sightings of the Silk Lady have purportedly become less frequent, but still, some do swear that they continue to catch glimpses of her ghostly figure. But most of them claim her spine-chilling cry can still be heard in the darkness of night. Now that's going to affect property value. I hope it's not an HOA because they're coming after her ass. <laughs> <laughs> this lawn is a quarter inch too high. And also this ghost is not on. <laughs> oh. I mean, this already, this is, you know, ties into that story. You, you, you told us, Brennan, you know, in, in some ways about the, the woman in the swamp and why are you there? Mm. I, it's, it's kind of fascinating that it's almost always a woman. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's it rarely do you hear about some spectral dude warbling off in the uh, in the muck. Although I suppose, you know, historically, women are going to have been the target of, of more, if we believe these things are caused by trauma, they are going to historically have been more likely the co- the uh, subject of, of that kind of violence. So I suppose that makes a kind of sense. But I, I sometimes wonder, you know, I wonder if it's where that, where that assumption comes from. Yeah. Now, I don't know about the macro world of, of ghost stories as much since I do focus so much on the South, but, but like, I like to joke that, that here, here in the American South, we have a real problem with dead brides, okay? With, <laughs> <laughs> we have a real problem with blonde hair, blue-eyed women either killing themselves because they don't want to get married, killing themselves because their husband didn't show up to the wedding, or just, you know, going on and having to... Uh, live a subservient life as a ghost uh, for the rest of their time because their husband just happened to die right before they got married. And she now has to, for the rest of her life, just cry about it. And it's always the same blonde hair, blue eyes. So, I mean, you know, maybe the, maybe it's the, it's another lady in white almost, right? So much of that, I think, has to do with this this cultural idea we have that getting married is the most important day in a woman's life. Yeah. And it's, I, yeah, again, I, I feel like that's where you sort of find a lot of the uh, hidden misogyny of all this ghost shit, right? Is, is, it's, it's so much a part of that world that it's, it's kind of hard to separate, to, to realize, oh yeah, that's probably it. It's because their delicate, their delicate sensibilities can't handle disappointment, you know, like they haven't yeah. been disappointed since time immemorial. Yeah. It's like the classic <laughs> British story about the, the, the jilted bride or, or the, the woman on the honeymoon who commits suicide because she cannot cope without her man in her life or whatever. And there's, there's, hundreds and hundreds of those and they're just yeah silly aren't they i I want the dude version where the dude just there's a weeping ghost that's playing call of duty at three in the morning (laughs) (laughs) that was murdered by her husband for or his husband or excuse me (laughs) his wife that was murdered by his wife for uh, playing call of duty when he should have been doing the dishes or or she didn't turn up his wife his wife didn't turn up to the wedding so he's just cried himself to death Shouting racial slurs on Xbox Live, you know. It, <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be an army of ghost incels one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that is a terror. That might be the most frightening image we've ever conjured on the show, and we've had Mister Skin and Bumblebuzz. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested in regards to that one, Brandon, because there's another famous 
ghost story from the from the south, from South Carolina, I think it is. Is it, is it the Gray Man? Who the Gray Man of Polly Island. Yeah, when when if if you see him, he's seen as a, a sign of good luck that your house will survive a hurricane or something. Is that right? Yes, yes. You want to see the Gray Man. He's he is mm. telling you to get the hell out. And yeah. um, I mean, that's a that's a classic story right there, Polly Island, because that's a that's an East Coast story and. People have described him in a, in, a, in a number of different ways. Some people say that he was actually, um, you know, kind of that 18th century seafarer, you know, that 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 got got abandoned there. And some people say that he is, of course, oddly enough, out looking for his bride who died. So, huh. you know, you, we, we've really kind of come full circle in connecting that. But uh, I mean, he's still to this day. Just a few years ago, there was a there's a hurricane that was uh, yeah. that was working its way up the, wet, the east coast over there, and um, some people had some footage that they had found of a security camera out on one of the piers out there, and they claimed it to be the gray man. And it was kind of getting passed around some of the ghost circles on Facebook and all. But yeah. um, that that story's so classic. It was on the Robert Stack Unsolved Mysteries. That's, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. such a, a well-known classic yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I think you know, they I mean, interviewed a guy who'd encountered him as a child, and his was the only house that didn't get damaged. So when we covered the Polly's Island, the Gray Man, I actually went back and watched the Unsolved Mysteries, and so this is just this is right out of one of our episodes. I'll just I'll just read out to you. Um, yeah. It you know we we mentioned the television show Unsolved Mysteries featured a segment on the legend of the Gray Man, including an interview with the residents. It was Jim and Clara Moore were their name, and they spoke of an encounter with the Gray Man while walking along the beach just two days prior to Hurricane Hugo. Now I don't mm. remember when that was. I, I want to say it's 1989. I believe here. Uh, so right prior, two days to that, they said as the figure on the beach came closer to them, it disappeared. The couple put the sighting out of their mind until after the storm subsided. And upon returning to the Polly's Island home, they found that despite nearly every home in their neighborhood being destroyed, theirs was still standing exactly as they had left it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's classic. The, I have here the most recent sighting was or when I wrote this, at least, was September 14th, 2018, which was Ooh. prior to Hurricane Florence. Wow. So um, that's, my that's the one that was getting passed around. Is it really your birthday? So is you September. out there. Yeah, yeah. it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't come Yeah, they visit. said uh, Florence was, just to put that in perspective, Florence was, uh, they took the signs that everybody left, seen it. Florence stalled over. It was only a category one storm when it made landfall. So it wasn't an immense storm. Uh, it still mm -hmm. had enough power to uproot trees, cause extensive power outages, and bring significant flooding through the Carolinas. But it stalled over the area, moving only two to three miles an hour, causing even more destruction. You know, when it gets stuck over it. Yeah. Um, they said a record breaking ran, uh, excuse me, record breaking rainfall. Uh, there were even nine deaths reported, but again, uh, the people who recorded the sighting did not have issue. So <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, that's a good ghost to see right there. That's not a shrieking lady by any no. means. No, you start leaving out cookies for the gray man. No, biscuits and gravy. Biscuits no, and pardon gravy. No, pardon me. Pardon <laughs> me. <laughs> Dread. Seven years ago, my wife and I purchased 11 acres of woods in a rural part of northeastern Minnesota. The woods were connected to a larger acreage of fields and woods of about 160 acres, and although sparsely populated, the land is near a fairly busy state highway. There are some housing developments in the area, but they are three to four miles away, and the majority of the land all around our property is farm fields, woods, and rivers. 
It's remote, but with towns so close, I wouldn't call it wild by any means. Rural, yes, but not the endless north woods. I'm not a believer in the supernatural and have never been afraid of the woods or the outdoors, even though I have a healthy sense of caution and respect for large bears, moose, wolves, or other potentially dangerous wildlife. I am also an avid hunter and mountaineer and have experienced many nights in the wilderness. Knowing my state of mind is important to my story because many so-called supernatural encounters can be explained by people with an already high level of belief, anxiety, or fear. That's not me. Well, that all changed after the first few weeks of moving into our new house. The house and land had been abandoned for a couple years due to foreclosure, so a lot of work needed to be done to get it back into shape. Wildlife had grown accustomed to no human presence, and black bears frequently roamed the yard at night, along with many other woodland creatures. We would find a lot of animal bones scattered throughout the woods, and coyotes were abundant. One night during those first few weeks, we had a rainstorm, and I was worried about a broken downspout potentially causing a basement leak. It was about 10 p.m., so I grabbed my headlamp and headed outside to deal with the situation. Behind our house is a fairly large swampy area that divides the woods. I had my back facing this area while fiddling with the downspout, when suddenly I had this intense feeling of dread. It's hard to explain, but it was like my body knew something was back there. Never having felt this type of fear before, I tried to stay calm and slowly turned around to point my headlamp back towards the swamp. What I saw was something I still can't explain. Eyes. Numerous, glowing, reflecting eyes staring back at me. These were not eye reflections that you typically see with a deer or other animals since they were at different heights, and when I pointed my headlamp spot beam directly at where you would expect a head to be, there was nothing there but weeds and trees. When I turned the headlamp off, they were still there and glowing, as if a light was being shined. They did not move, and they just stared through me. Needless to say, I bolted and ran as fast as I could back into the house and explained it away as deer or raccoons. Later that summer, I was out sitting on our screened-in porch that partially faces the swamp and connected woods to the west. It was approximately 11 p.m. when I began to hear what sounded like a bear fighting with or attacking a cow. Since there was a small farm to the southwest of my property, I assumed that perhaps a cow had wandered into the woods and been attacked by a bear. I really didn't know if this was something a bear would actually do, but it was my guess based on the sounds I was hearing at the time. It was clearly some kind of roar, like a bear, then followed by a frantic-sounding moo. This went on for over an hour, and it was perhaps one of the most horrible sounds I've ever heard. Even though it sounded so strange and almost supernatural, it didn't frighten me since I had this rational explanation in my head. Even weirder, this same series of sounds happened again the next summer. These first few years, I never investigated the area of the woods the sounds came from since it was not my property. A couple of years later, I had the chance to purchase this area and 70 acres to the west, which consisted of the woods that connected to mine, as well as a few tilled fields, more woods, and ponds. As part of purchasing this land, I spent a great deal of time walking around on it to get a better understanding of its value and layout. As part of my walk, I was able to get a much better look at the farm setup to the south. The farm did have cows, as I suspected, but to my surprise, the area they were kept in was a long distance from my house. Much too far for me to hear them, and the fencing was also extremely well built and electrified. Looking at it, there was just no way a cow was wandering off from that farm. 
I didn't really think about this fact until recently, but feel it's best to lay everything out in chronological order. After acquiring the property, I proceeded to put up tree stands at various locations along with trail cameras in order to prep for the upcoming deer hunting season. One spot was the hilly woods where I heard those sounds years prior. Again, I did not connect these two things until now. The area was odd, as whenever I hiked through there, I always saw some new strange thing. One time, my son and I found an old game snare tied to a tree with what looked to be dried blood on the tree bark. Another time, we found at least a hundred-year-old tree with a barbed wire fence completely spiraling the entire trunk, growing in and out of it at different intervals. I've also found many tree trunks with very large scratches or claw marks not resembling an antler rub. Perhaps a bear? We'd almost always find animal bones in this area, and even this winter I found a couple of deer legs snapped and picked clean. My sons have found numerous animal skulls there as well. As I was saying, I put a game camera in this area since I'd seen tracks and sign and wanted to get a sense of the best places to hunt. I've placed one there many seasons and have yet to capture a single thing on it. Nothing. My son has posted there a couple times for hunting season and has mentioned the strange sense of quiet. He's used to the forest sounds coming back after sitting still for long periods of time, but in this spot, there are never any sounds. He has mentioned hearing something walking around, though. Another incident occurred one hunting season, when I was entering this area en route to another stand, when I saw a violent thrashing in the foliage, moving fast and crossing from right to left, but moving away from my position. I, of course, encounter deer and bear all the time, and so I am familiar with how they move when spooked, but this was something different. Whatever this thing was made a high-pitched trumpeting sound, combined with a bellowing that was like nothing I'd ever heard from an animal outside of an elk, which we don't have here. It wasn't bounding, and there wasn't the raised white tail or large dark mass to indicate a deer or bear. There really didn't appear to be a body at all, just whipping and falling leaves and branches along with the deafening sounds. A year after this incident, my son went out hiking in the woods to try and find me since I was out doing some forest management. As he walked through this area, he thought he spotted me coming through the woods fast, but quickly noticed the walk and clothing were nothing like mine. Whoever it was, it was also a lot taller than me, and he described him as extremely thin. He said the person he saw did not notice him at all, and seemed to be walking in a straight line like they had tunnel vision or something. Seeing someone in this part of the woods and their direction of travel didn't make sense at all, since there really would be no reason to be there or to be headed that way as it leads to deep ravines and an uncrossable river. After he found me and explained what he saw, I quickly went over to investigate to see if we had a trespasser. I hiked for quite a while, but never found anything or anyone. If someone was there, they either got picked up on the road or vanished. That same year, my son had a friend over, and they went for a late afternoon walk in the woods. As it began to get dark, they made their way back by walking on the edge of the field that is next to this area of woods. As they passed by, they said they saw a figure a little ways off in the trees. Whatever they saw was near one of the hills in this patch of forest, and seemed to be making some kind of hand gesture. It began walking slowly towards them when they called out, Hey, hello! He or it stopped still and said nothing. It was at this point the boys sensed something wasn't right and bolted back towards the house. They rushed into the house and told me what they saw, and I of course laughed it off as their mind playing tricks on them. My son described the figure as very tall, maybe 10 or 15 feet, but with skinny arms, and his body was dark all over. Not hairy, per se, but dark. They even thought it was an animal at first because of the weird way it looked. 
He couldn't really describe it very well other than gaunt or skinny, and strangely dark. Me being the curious and protective father I am, I was worried about it, being trespassers, drug addicts, or both, so I told them I would go take a look. They brought me to the area and pointed to where it was standing, and I headed into the woods. Since it was winter and there was snow on the ground, I thought it would be easy to locate the tracks of whatever this was and find out where it had come from or gone to. When I got to the spot, there wasn't a single track or disturbance in the snow. There was no way an animal or man could have been in that area and not left tracks. They had either made it up or their minds had played tricks on them. Or so I thought. To this day, my son and his friends still swear they saw it clear as day, and I can definitely attest that their fright was real. My wife has also experienced strange thrashing sounds and other feelings of dread or being watched in this part of the woods, and generally refuses to go there anymore. All of this brings me to today, where I had a sudden realization that all of the strange sounds, sightings, bones, and events seem to be centered around this one area, and I'm just at a complete loss as to what it all means. What this means is you shouldn't live in the woods. That's what that means. (laughs) This is not 1875. Go move to a city. (laughs) This is how horror movies start. That's it. It's already started. He's at the middle. He's at the mid act point. It's it's coming. Mr. (laughs) Nolan is on his way. What's that noise outside? I'm just going to go outside. They just find a shoe up the tree. You know, I, I I always thought I, you know, and you guys have a very different perspective, I'm sure. But some of these ghost stories, to me, I thought like the genesis of a lot of modern ones that I took in had to do with like that really, like overly American philosophy of I own this shit and therefore right. it's mine, and yep. like you know, like this is my house and this is you know like our land and like and and the and the ghost stories are like yeah, I don't think so. You know, and uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I think of here. I think like very like, I like, you know, I'm going to go buy this and, you know, the, the, or the joke, you know, like America's built, you know, on the, you know, on Indian burial grounds, literally. Right. And that's yep. what, you know, that's what this is. Right. So, yeah. It is, it is a nation bought with blood. Yeah. 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 We've just run out of room. There's that many civilizations buried under us. <laughs> That's true. You got you got layers. Yeah. Neolithic man. We've got Celts, pagans, Picts, Vikings, Normans, Romans. Everybody's had a nibble. Oh man. <laughs> so where was this property? The story was at. I I, I didn't catch. I think they said northeastern Minnesota. I believe. Uh-huh. Um, Wendigo land. I was going to oh, ask yeah, of course. If, if there's some monster uh, behind this one as opposed to ghosts, if there's more uh, that kind of... Yeah. Strange, screeny creatures. That's typically what uh, the, the normal Native American version of the Wendigo is a, is a thin, gaunt creature wailing through the woods, isn't it? Oh, right. I forgot about it. I always think of it in terms of the like the wasting and the, the cannibalism. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's that's the second course. That's coming... That's coming next week in the story. (laughs) (laughs) Once he's got him outside. We'll we'll read about that on the news. (laughs) 411. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Nolan has attacked again. (laughs) We're turning that into a thing, dude. I swear to God, we're going to start talking about Mr. Nolan on the show. And we will turn it for a movie. Somebody's going to hear you talking about it. And then one day there's going to be a horror movie and I'm going to, I'm going to want my damn IP back. Okay. <laughs> well, see, you know what we'll do is then we sue the shit out of them and we all get rich. 
<laughs> Boom. Oh, Mr. Nolan, man. What do you, well, you know, I mean, again, this is how this stuff gets made, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's the the ones that last or the ones that that evolve as it goes on, right? So you're talking about it and we're talking about, you know, going from Mr. Nolan coming out from behind the levee to now, you know, Mr. Nolan's the source of of uh, of of these 411s, right? I mean, <laughs> Your story, what I what I kept picturing when you said the story is, have you heard of the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park? No. The, um, in West Virginia. Okay. There's there's a piece of land out there and there was an amusement park back in the early 20th century, but it was a farm. It was a farmland. So back in, I don't know, we're, we're talking early, early settlement days, a family uh, went out and they went and settled and, I mean, cut cut the forest down to make their homestead. It was back Back before West Virginia, West Virginia was still Virginia, right? I mean, that was back back when you were, you know, the, the Shawnee. They were still fighting with the native people. They were trying to protect themselves, and um, and what it is today is in the early 20th century, it was an amusement park for all the coal miners in West Virginia. It was meant to be like a family place for all the coal miners, and they uh, they of course had some deaths there, which early 20th century amusement park one would expect, right? It doesn't necessarily, but they, you know, but they attributed it to the fact that um you know that the land was haunted and it's and since then the amusement park of course it it got shut down after a number of years and it's just left there to rot now okay so so there's still like the the like rusted ferris wheel out on this property there's still all this stuff and the people who purchased it back in the 80s you know knowing full well what it was and it's creepy they made it a tourist destination a haunted tourist destination right but uh-huh. But it has this history behind it, so it's the same thing. It's like there's no, there's no like apparition or anything. It's always these noises here or there, and they're they're all kind of tied to like this long history of the land because the people who originally settled this land out in West Virginia, their family was massacred by the Shawnee people, and and then you know again we talk about the the some things actually are real that make the other ones not real, like. They're they're doing renovation at one point at the at this you know old amusement park that's now become come out and stay on the property and ghost hunt is what it is now right but they're back in the nineties or something they're they're doing renovation or something on the property and they're digging up on the property and sure enough they actually find the remains of some native people on the property and I mean like like dozens like children and everything oh my god so so it wasn't even the classic like you know trope you know that Stephen King trope of like oh well this is a native burial ground and that's why it's haunted this was a freaking native burial ground that they built this amusement park on and they and they and it really was the case and but it was a similar when you're describing that. That's what I kept thinking of is this, you know, weird noises, and it's almost like an amorphous of of this land existed before you, and how dare you even come and be here now? You know, you want to hunt this land? I mean, there's all these things around that are going to stop you or remind you this this shit ain't yours. And if there's one thing you take away from this, folks, remember this shit ain't yours. Stay out of the forest. <laughs> This is the official position of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. Well, we had more stories, but we have we have run out of time, so we're going to call it. Our guest, of course, has been Brandon Schechtsneider from the Southern Gothic podcast. Brandon, I can't tell you enough how fun this was, man, how much we've loved having you here. I mean, Brilliant. folks, I, I want to just to show you what a trooper this guy is. We have been on this call, I think this is... Four hours, it'll be five hours by the time we wrap up. This poor <laughs> motherfucker will have been on the phone with me for five hours. My own wife 
wouldn't stay on the phone with me <laughs> for five hours. Man, mum would. In all fairness. <laughs> yeah, she never stopped calling me, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It has been a blast, though. I, I think I talk more than y'all. So what are, you, what are you talking about? You've been listening to me for five hours. No, it's been great. Not how Thank I remember you. it. <laughs> Thanks for being here, man. So where can everyone find you online? Totally. Go to southerngothicmedia.com. That's our website. It's got links to all the apps everywhere. You can get the podcast, our Patreon, everything there. You can find us on YouTube, of course. we got the little squiggly line. You can listen to the podcast there. But like everybody says, wherever your favorite pod, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, you can find Southern Gothic. That's Southern Gothic. And you want to listen to that show, folks. It is really, really great. I know I said that in the intro. I meant it. I'm not just saying it because he's here. It is a great show. Listen to Southern Gothic. And we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now, because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now, and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it, and make a phone call, or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be, it's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is one three three four five six. 4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988. In the UK, the number to call is 116123 or text SHOUT, that's S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. Thanks again to Brandon Schecksnyder of the Southern Gothic Podcast for hanging out with us tonight. It was such a great time. And again, make sure to check out Southern Gothic. We'll include a link in the show notes. You will not regret it. Thanks also to the Ghost Story Guys family. That is Luke, Anthony, Sarah, and Joseph. Luke's podcast, Luke Lore, is available on podcast platforms everywhere. Joseph is host of The Cardinal Rule, which is a YouTube show about Arizona Cardinals football. If you are that way inclined, you'll find that on YouTube. And of course... Thanks to you, my friend and co-host, the one, the only, Paul Bestel, the paranormal Johnny Carson himself, host of Mysteries and Monsters. Paul, what's coming up on Eminem? Uh, well, this week we're diving into the world of international cryptids with Kenny Irish. And then next week, 
I welcome infamous, well, not infamous, legendary alien hunter Daryl Sims to talk about implants and investigations into alien abductions. Probably not talking the kind of implants I'm thinking. No, not those kinds of implants. <laughs> not the spring break kind. No, no. Okay. No. The, uh, the short gray, strange mantis type ones. Oh my. And where can everyone find you online? You can find Mysteries and Monsters wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and around all social media platforms. Lovely. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Largely the Truth. You can find my podcast, Largely the Truth, with Brennan Store. That's an interview show. That is uh, the new ep- a new episode of that with Buddy Young from the band Steel City Ruins will be out soon. You can also find me on the horror movie podcast, Weird Together. That's co-hosted with Joseph from The Cardinal Rule. And that is on podcast platforms everywhere. As we said at the top of the show, this show survives by virtue of its patrons. And if you'd like to join their ranks, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. Get access to bonus shows, physical rewards, and exclusive live shows just for our patrons. Again, that's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. Any spots coming up? Yeah, people are going to be sick of me. I've been uh, kindly invited to join Morgan and Mike on the relaunched Supernatural Circumstances, diving into a lesser-known British poltergeist case. Well, it depends who you talk to, really. Um, So I'm doing that. Um, I'm going to be on Paratalk with Reeves as well. And I'm going to be joining the gang over on Spooks, Creeps, and Devil Rain as well. Brilliant. Well, we'll make sure to post those up on our social media when when those drop. I was recently a guest on Supernatural Circumstances with Morgan and Mike. You'll find that on our social media and at ghost3guys.com. Those are all archived there. It was a really great conversation. Those two are very, very cool people. And I encourage you to check out not just that episode, but their show generally. If you've got a story to share, we would love to hear it. Ghoststoryguys at gmail.com is a place to send it. If you want to send us a note just saying you like the show or don't tell us you don't like the show. I don't care. But if you like the show and you want to tell us, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com is a place to send it. We would love to hear your stories. We're talking about doing a uh, listener story episode very soon, possibly next episode. We're not totally sure. But again, that's ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. If you want to pick up some swag, head to our website, ghoststoryguys.com. We've got a print-on-demand store. You can get t-shirts, stickers, all kinds of cool stuff. We have our, our new design, the Goat Story Guys, inspired by a gag from the episode with Kev Eustace. That's episode 156, Behold a Haunted Horse. And again, that's the Goat Story Guy shirt designed by Canadian artist Catherine Holmes. Shout out again to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and composer Jerry Smith. You can find their music streaming as Rainy Days for Ghosts on music platforms everywhere. And if you want to hire Jerry for your next project, and you really do, they do great stuff, shoot them an email at rainydaysforghosts at gmail.com. Our theme song, Radio Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kursov of Pizzanta Music. Find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Our stories theme is The Future Belongs to Them Now by Hexagram. Find more from them by searching for Hexagram wherever you get your music. Remember, that's Hexagram with two X's, not three. And I guess that's going to do it. It is. But until then, we'll be back in two... Hang on, I've got that completely fucking wrong way around. <laughs> At least I'm not the only one. Oh, Fuck God. me. Fucking hell. Um, <laughs> strike a light Shock and Frank And he's with Mr. Nolan 
Watch out, Mr. Nolan's got me peanuts. <laughs> oh, best outtake ever. Anyway. <laughs> but until then, <laughs> until... <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back in a couple of weeks yeah it's alright I'm just thinking about Mr. Nolan and my nuts um, <laughs> but until then we'll be back in a couple oh for fuck's sake we'll be back <laughs> we'll, even, the, even the troll in my room staring at me funny now we'll be back in a couple of weeks but until then into the darkness we go <laughs> with Mr. Nolan <laughs> and he's nuts. And Paul's peanuts. Woo! And I'll say, I know social media, and I'll say, and I'll, I'll say, social media algorithms get a lot of bad rap. Oh, God. Sorry. Get a bad rap. No, no, it's okay. It's a long day. About, he recalled, continuing, and it was, the, and, hmm. <laughs> old newspapers are weird. Is that my side This with all the sirens? I assume it is, because this place is garbage, but. Yeah, Sheffield, Sheffield's quiet tonight. <laughs> no, I think it's here. So if Where'd that pup game? go? <laughs> <laughs> that that dog was, was hanging out with you. It sounded like you had a poltergeist for a little while. Oh gosh, <laughs> yeah, he's he's fast asleep now. Oh, he's oh, still there. Yeah, I sort of assumed Julie had taken him out. He did, and then uh, and then she's she's tied him out and brought him back. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, she's had enough of him. Madison, <laughs> right out of the gate. <laughs> Brent Sheck Snyder for oh fuck. Brent, say what you wanted to say. No, no. <laughs> this motherfucker, no. <laughs> I'm talking. Uh, real, let's rewind. <clears throat> I'm gonna make you laugh through my last. You're not even gonna be able to say it now. You can say Brandon, Brandon of Southern Gothic is enough. No, that's uh, this guy. Him. The guy with the long hair, you know. Brandon from Tennessee. Thank you. That's right. <laughs> Thanks again to Brendan. Jesus.